Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Don't forget to claim your CE after listening. Welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am Jeff Wall, your host. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University. Today, we're going to talk about a paper that um, I, I haven't seen much papers in, in the ICU literature that has generated as much heat, shall we say, as, as, as this paper that was just published in New England Journal of Medicine, uh, looking at giving corticosteroids in patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia. It's all over the social media. It's all over the lay media. I personally have been asked multiple times by uh, uh, some of the pulmonologists I know in my own group in my ICU, uh, have, have asked about it as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge topic and, uh, and again, a, a study that has really set a lot of people, uh, you know, to the side and said, well, geez, this is something we need to re- really kind of take a look at. And, you know, kind of spoiler alert, you know, my general thought right now is, you know, uh, not to paraphrase Ronald Reagan, the kind of trust but verify sort of thing, you know, certainly steroids in pneumonia in general has really, you know, pendulumed back and forth over the last 30 years or so, um, you know, back in the late 1990s, early 1990s, there were a couple of studies looking at steroids for just general community acquired pneumonia and found, yes, there was a benefit in re- resolution of symptoms, there was a benefit in getting people out of the hospital, et cetera. Et cetera, didn't seem to be a ton of benefit in actual mortality. Now, of course, part of that is that when you look at all comers for community acquired pneumonia, the overall mortality is relatively low. So maybe they just didn't see that. But then a couple of studies, you know, uh, in the 2000s said, no, not really. There's, if there is a benefit, it's, it's really minor. So it's probably not worth it, especially with the side effects of steroids and stuff like that. So, I mean, it, this pendulum's kind of gone back and forth. And so I'm always nervous when a paper comes out that, you know, uh, aims to be a tiebreaker, as you will. And, and, and makes the pendulum swing back one way or another. Um, so I'm, I have to admit, I'm a little nervous about it. And then I think all ICU practitioners who have been out more than 10 years or so have really kind of uh, gotten bitten in the butt, shall we say, with uh, so-called miracle cures in the ICU, things that, you know, one paper comes out and it just shows this unbelievable benefit, especially in mortality, and everybody jumps on the bandwagon right away. And, and some examples of that, I think in the last 20 years have included the old drug Zygris, Dokodrogan, alpha, which again, when that drug came out, it, you know, it, it dramatically de- decreased mortality and septic shock was the first drug ever to do so. And everybody jumped on the, on that bandwagon. And then uh, multiple follow-up studies found that not only does it not help, it's actually probably harmful. It's got yanked from the market, the uh, tight control of blood glucose. One big study looked at that. And again, found this just unbelievable decrease in mortality and getting people out of the ICU and decreased infections and all that. And then other studies came out and again, not only found no benefit, but the nice sugar study actually found the too tight a control of blood sugars actually increases harm. So that and urethropoietin and all sorts of other things that have been uh, toted as, as, you know, this is going to change everything in the ICU. Uh, yes, that's certainly possible, but uh, definitely fool me once, uh, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me sort of thing. So that all being said, you know, we're, we're kind of the spoiler out of the way. Let's talk a little bit about the, the paper itself. The paper is published in the Wing Journal of Medicine, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes. Um, the paper, the authors do point out that, I mean, you know, it, it shouldn't be like we're not looking for better ways to treat pneumonia, or frankly, prevent pneumonia. By, by vaccinating appropriate patients. But again, you know, they point out that pneumonia is still one of the leading causes of death. It's actually the leading infectious disease cause of death in the United States. About 50,000 people die every year in the United States from community-acquired pneumonia. 
uh, let that kind of sink in a little bit. And, and uh, it, the, the burden of hospitalization is very high uh, with about 1.5 million patients hospitalized for CAP annually. So, you know, again, this is still a huge problem and I'm not trying to suggest that, that you know, well, you know, we don't need any new treatments because the treatments are great. We do have good treatments, but we could always uh, use something that, that would improve those outcomes. And as we all know, like, like many infections, you know, the infection itself is the problem. And in many cases, it's the body's response to the infection by triggering a pro-inflammatory cascade that can lead to all sorts of other problems down the road, right? And so that's the theory why steroids might have a benefit because of their anti-inflammatory properties. They note in, in the beginning of the study, and I would encourage you to read this, they kind of summarize the data quite nicely about this ping-ponging back and forth between benefit, no benefit, benefit, no benefit. There's actually been several meta-analyses, and my joke always to my students is when you have multiple meta-analyses out, that means we really don't have any idea what we're talking about. And I think that that's kind of the case here because uh, several meta-analyses basically come out that suggested that, again, there may be a benefit in decreasing length of stay and resolution of symptoms, but probably not a benefit in mortality. But they also noted that none of these studies were really powered to do so and were done uh, in a pretty heterogeneous cohort of patients, you know, some who were kind of sick and some who were, you know, near death with community-acquired pneumonia. And in this kind of setting is where the Cape Cod study was published, which is the study we're going to talk about today. Um, this was a study done in France where they actually actually tried to take a look at mortality, and they wanted to look only at patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia, which we'll get into the definitions in a moment, but, but you know, suffice it to say, patients who were sick enough that had to be in the ICU for community-acquired pneumonia. So, you know, this isn't just everybody who's treated as an outpatient for CAP or even inpatients on the floor. These were patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia who, who required ICU setting. Again, as a double-blind randomized controlled superiority study, many of these studies are done in France. Um, I think part of that reason is that the French have done a really, really good job linking all their large hospitals together to do these kind of, you know, multi-center studies. And uh, that's particularly true in ICU studies. If you take a look in the last 20, 25 years, many of the uh, uh, interventions that have been examined uh, in the ICU have been done in France because they're able to combine all these different ICUs together because of, of you know, the outcomes we're looking at. There's really almost very few or no hospitals large enough or with an ICU large enough to really have the power to look at differences, particularly in mortality because of just the heterogeneous nature of patients. So this study was done as part of this French uh, group of, of, of ICUs. Uh, inclusion criteria you had to be over 18 years old. Uh, you had to have admission to the ICU. And we'll talk about what their definition of severe CAP was. You had to have a diagnosis of CAP, of course, um, which they diagnosed or delineated as someone who had cough, purulent and sputum chest pain or dyspnea with uh, chest x-ray or CT scans that, that suggested uh, pneumonia. They had to have uh, the diagnosis within 48 hours of the admission, um, and they had to start uh, the study drug no, more, no longer than uh, 24 hours post being enrolled in the study. They defined severe community-acquired pneumonia kind of interestingly. The first thing they did is they used the pneumonia severity index, which has been you know, validated in multiple studies to uh, um, predict uh, mortality in patients and the higher the scoring system. So it goes one, two, three, four, five, the higher the scoring system, the higher mortality. Uh, it also has been validated in patients who should be hospitalized versus don't. And they really uh, basically look at patients who had to have a pneumonia severity index or PSI of, of a class five. So basically the most severe types of pneumonia. And then they either had to be on mechanical ventilation, which could be regular, you know, invasive or, or, or BiPAP uh, for acute respiratory failure with at least a PEEP of five. 
and then uh, they, or they could be on high flow uh, oxygen therapy, usually AirVo with an FiO2 of 50% and a, a P to F ratio of less than 200. So again, you know, very, very sick patients, not the patients that you usually see on the floor who may be on a couple of liters of O2. These were patients who were in respiratory failure with high uh, prediction mortality and required, you know, in most cases, either high flow oxygen or some sort of artificial ventilation. They were of course, all had to be treated with antibiotics and they all had to have a, a conformed consent. They excluded patients who were in septic shock, so you couldn't be on vasopressors at the time of inclusion. If there was some clinical history suggesting aspiration, they, we, uh, they didn't allow them to be in the study. That's a whole game changer so we could talk in ourselves about, you know, what do you do in the patient who's aspirating gastric content, and do you wonder about pneumonia in those patients, but maybe that's, maybe that's a later game changer. Uh, they couldn't have had mechanical ventilation within 14 days prior to hospital admission. They uh, couldn't have been treated for antibiotics for respiratory infection for more than five days prior to admission. History of cystic fibrosis and post-obstructive pneumonia, which makes sense because those patients are going to tend to have much different organisms causing CAP compared to um, just the, you know, the usual, you know, players, strep pneumo, legionella, things like that, H-flu that you would expect to see in, in, in regular CAP. Uh, post-obstructive pneumonia for the exact same reason. If they had a, a PCR test positive for flu, tuberculosis, or active fungal infection, if they had acute viral hepatitis or herpes virus, if they decided to withhold mechanical ventilation for some other reason, usually, you know, the patient's wishes or something like that, if they needed to be on corticosteroids before, you know, for any other reason, or if they were treated with home uh, a prednisone or equivalent of more than 15 milligrams, obviously uh, um, uh, pregnant or breastfeeding women as well. So how the study worked is they did uh, do state-of-the-art standard therapy. So again, the standard, I'm sure they have protocols in France, just like we do here in the U.S. of how you approach the treatment of CAP. And so antibiotic selection, fluid selection, uh, nebulizers, uh, the type of respiratory uh, oxygen support was all left up to, to the, the medical team. And then at that point, the patients were, uh, were randomized. And if they met the criteria, they received uh, one group received intravenous hydrocortisone administered is a continuous infusion, uh, which we'll talk about, at 200 milligrams a day during the uh, first four days of, of their hospitalization. On the fourth day, the, the medical team then used the standardized criteria to decide whether they should uh, continue the hydrocortisone for a total of eight or 14 days. And this largely depended on just you know, looking at the patient, determining whether that their condition had improved significantly or a little bit, basically, to determine the, the length of therapy. If, if you go to the, uh, the supplemental material of the study, they actually have this little algorithm that they kind of talk about. And they basically say that you know at, at day four, if the patient was breathing spontaneously, so was again off of, of ventilation, had a high uh, a normal PDF ratio, that their SOFA score, which of course is a, is a score that we use in the ICU to kind of assess uh, severity of illness and, and predict mortality, was at least the same as it was on day one, if not better. And then, uh, you know, basically just the gestalt of the uh, ICU team saying that this patient will probably be discharged um, um, within 14 days from the hospital, basically. So if they, if they met that adaptive scheme, they they actually got a, a total of eight days of therapy. If they did not, uh, they moved on to a full 14 days of therapy at which they had this kind of 
uh, complex tapering schedule where they would, you know, do 200, then 150, then off sort of stuff. You know, my personal opinion is you probably don't need to taper steroids if it's less than 10 days. So uh, I'm not sure that's necessary, but that's exactly what they did in the study, basically. Their primary outcome was death from any cause. And so you got to give them credit for, for looking at the hardest outcome of all in ICU patients. But it is notable, again, as I've said before, that that's really hard to do in ICU patients because the heterogeneous nature of patients usually require hundreds and hundreds hundreds of patients. And so in any one, one center, it's just really hard to pull off. It is worth noting that many of the things we consider standard of care in the ICU uh, have little or no evidence to support mortality benefit. And that includes things like, you know, suppressors in the, in, in for septic shock and a host of other things have, have, you know, they should, they may improve other outcomes, but they don't really improve, or we don't have data that shows they improve outcomes. So, but that was their primary outcome, death from any cause at day 28. Secondary outcomes included death by day 90, uh, the length of ICU stay, uh, patients who uh, went on to, to need non-invasive or endotracheal intubation and ventilation uh, if they didn't have that at baseline, and then a host of other you know, scoring things like the SOFA score, uh, physiologic symptoms, quality of life, uh, and then safety outcomes included uh, numbers of, of secondary infections, gastrointestinal bleeding, and the amount of insulin, because of course, many of these patients are going to get hyperglycemic by day seven. I, it is worth noting, and, I'm, and I appreciate why they looked at the outcome of GI bleeding, but it is worth noting that the, the data to date is very clear that uh, steroids by themselves do not increase the risk of gastrointestinal bleeding. Uh, they do potentiate uh, the risk of GI bleeding in patients on non-steroidals, but by themselves, they do not seem to increase the risk of uh, developing spontaneous GI bleeds. So, But I can understand why they did that study that certainly makes sense. Now, one of the issues that they ran into is COVID, of course, and, and this is something I think we're going to see for years to come in a lot of the studies that we look at, particularly in the ICU, that uh, at the time of the outbreak of COVID in France, they had, all, they had all had already 800 patients who had undergone randomization. And so they realized that to continue the study would, you know, hopelessly confound the study because if they had COVID or not, would they got steroids or not because they had COVID, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what they decided to do is, is suspend enrollment in the study. And they actually went on to another study uh, uh, that looked at hydrocortisone in, in COVID patients, but that's not what we're talking about today. And so they, they basically halted study and then uh, at the end of the pandemic, uh, re, you know, relook at re-enrolling patients. Um, like all places around the world, there the authors, of course, got completely overwhelmed with COVID, and it was only recently, in the, in the last several months, possible to uh, basically take a look at the data that had already been uh, done and say, okay, do we need to continue the study? And so they did actually an interim analysis after they felt like the authors, you know, could, you know, the pandemic had receded enough that they could actually have the time to do this. And they did a, a secondary analysis with their data and safety monitoring board. And at that point, they actually recommended that the study be uh, discontinued uh, because they felt they had enough benefit they didn't need to continue the study. Now, again, I always you know, have a little bit of concern when studies are stopped early for benefit, because you know, if, if the study would have been taken to conclusion, would that benefit persisted? Would have been a durable benefit? Were there side effects that come up that you wouldn't have seen in the shorter uh, period of the study? But the bottom line was their data safety monitoring board said, yeah, we're, you know, we, we feel like there's enough benefit. We can go ahead and, and, and discontinue enrollment. Um, I suspect that, that the authors 
breathe a sigh of relief because uh, you know there would have certainly been some statistical issues and other issues when you started a study, had a pandemic in between, and then continued the study afterwards. So I can see why they did that. The uh, statistics were pretty complex, and and I may understand why. Again, you'd have to you'd have to do some sort of logistic regression analysis or propensity match scoring to deal with all these uh, um, uh, covariates that that would, would could influence outcome and possible confounders. So I totally get that that it was it was a pretty complex study, and so you need complex statistics. They did use a, a fine and gray model, which I'm not going to lie, I'd never heard of before, um, but uh, I did a little reading on it, and, and it is, an, uh, it is a, a way to kind of take a look at a outcome, especially a dichotomous outcome, and deal with all the confounding agents that you might deal with. So I'd never heard of it, but I could see I could see why they were doing it. Uh, they felt like they did death as an uh, and then lack of death as a competing element in in a, in a kind of a risk approach. Again, I won't go into too much into the statistics. Again, I didn't fully understand them. You know, uh, I always get uh, you know I was always kind of taught you know st you know standard statistical tests can handle just about anything you you can deal with. So when you see uh, a weird or unusual statistical test that you don't normally see, you have to kind of question question, is there a problem there? But I think from what I'm reading, this is not maybe not the way that a lot of people would have done this, but it certainly is a valid method for looking at the statistics. So, so uh, what did they find in the study? And what are some of the, the conclusions we can take from this? We are going to talk about that as soon as we hear from our sponsor, CE Impact. Hi, this is Jen Moulton, founder of CE Impact. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review. We're growing and the more followers and ratings we have, the more great content we can provide. We appreciate your support to help you connect your learning to practice. So we're back talking about the Cape Cod study looking at uh, steroids and severe community acquired pneumonia. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit now about, about the uh, characteristics of the baseline, mean age was 67. Uh, the majority of uh, patients were male, as you might imagine. As far as, as comorbid conditions, about a fourth of them had uh, a COPD. Um, that seems a little low to me, but again, you know, not so, you know, about where you might ex expect. And about a third of them had diabetes as well. As far as uh, their type of respiratory support, about half of the patients were on mechanical ventilation, and that was split right down the middle between invasive and non-invasive mechanical ventilation. And then the, the rest basically were on, on Aerovo or, or, or high flow nasal oxygen. Um, so it was, it was almost an exact 50-50 split between them. As far as the PSI score, uh, about 50% of patients had a PSI score of five. Uh, interestingly, even though it was one of the inclusion criteria, um, uh, the, the rest of the patients essentially had a, P a PSI score of four. But again, they all had either be on Aerovo or some sort of mechanical ventilation. So, I mean, I think you could quibble a little bit about that. But in the end, these are all patients that would certainly be treated in my ICU, and I suspect most ICUs across the country. SOFA score was four, so high, um, but not outrageously so. So, I mean, but these were pretty sick patients. About 10% of them eventually did need vasopressors during their hospital stay. But certainly the most intriguing baseline a characteristic was taking a look at some of their laboratory data, in particular, C-reactive protein. And we know that C-reactive protein is a marker for inflammation, and, it, and it's very sensitive to changes in, in inflammatory state, especially in respiratory infections. And they found that the median C-reactive protein was 26, and that about 70% of patients had a value of, of greater than 15 of, of their C-reactive protein. They also looked at procalcitonin, as you might imagine. Interestingly, their median procalcitonin was fairly high, 3.2 in the uh, treatment group versus four in, in the placebo group and uh, uh, median
mean uh, uh, cortisol was normal between the two. Uh, as far as time of, of treatment, it was about five hours from um, ICU admission uh, where the timing of treatment basically started. So what do they find? Again, this is what, why there's been so much chatter about, about the study was that they found a significant and frankly pretty amazing decrease in death by 28 days with 6.2% uh, of patients in the hydrocortisone arm dying within the first 28 days compared to 11.9%. So about a halving of or almost a 50% relative risk reduction in death, uh, which of course was statistically significant and had a number needed to treat of only 17, which is just pretty, just amazing. So basically for every 17 patients that have severe CAP that uh, um, you would give steroids to, you would, you would save a life. Um, after uh, one in 17 patients, so just overwhelming benefit. And, and again, I think that's what's caused people to, to be so surprised and excited about this study. Death at 90 days was, a, was a not quite as low, but did reach statistical significance with 9.3% of patients in the hydrocortisone arm dying by day 90 compared to 14.7% of the placebo arm. So again, you know, you know, that it seemed to be a durable response as well. And then, you know, everything else pretty much across the board was beneficial. Uh, patients who received hydrocortisone uh, were about half as likely to require endotracheal intubation or uh, non-invasive ventilation by day 28. Um, and then uh, the need of vasopressors went way down if, if uh, you received hydrocortisone. Quality of life improved in those patients quicker than it did in, in the placebo arm. So again, pretty much across the board, they found, they found benefit. But of course, this 28-day mortality, which is just surprised and, and excited a lot of people about the use of this intervention. Going to safety outcomes, uh, they actually found that it was pretty safe. Um, the cumulative incidence of secondary infection uh, was actually lower in the hydrocortisone arm compared to, to uh, uh, the placebo arm. It didn't reach statistical significance. I wouldn't expect it to, but they, they, they not only didn't find a numerical increase in, in infections, they actually found a decrease in infections in the hydrocortisone arm. Uh, as I mentioned before, the, the incidence of GI bleeding was, again, actually lower in the hydrocortisone arm compared to the placebo arm. And, uh, but the one difference, as you might imagine, was that a need of insulin and amount of insulin therapy was higher in the hydrocortisone arm. About 35% of patients uh, had either an initiation of insulin or an increase in their uh, dose of insulin compared to 20.5% of placebo arm and that reached statistical significance, but again, did not seem to have any sort of long-term term issue associated. So again, across the board, a very potent and, and beneficial intervention uh, in, in severe cap patients. So, you know, the, the authors talk, of course, about the limitations they found. Uh, the overall mortality was lower than expected. Uh, they, they attributed this maybe less sick patients than they thought. But again, considering that they found, you know, a, a, pro a profound benefit, I'm not sure how much of a limitation that is. It is worth noting in the United States, we just don't do continuous infusion hydrocortisone here. Um, you know, it, we almost always give it by, by intravenous piggyback or intravenous push. So I'm you know, I, you know, if we were going to translate that information in the United States, it would have to, you know, we'd have to adapt that and not give continuous infusions and, and give it some other way to compound this. Um, um, and many of the hospital pharmacists know this. We're listening. Uh, we have a current nationwide shortage of intravenous hydrocortisone. It's essentially gone. And at my hospital, we've had to basically substitute methylprednisolone for that. So that's another issue is that even if you thought everything was terrific, um, you, you wouldn't be able to implement hydrocortisone here because of that. And then the other very intriguing thing is when they did an analysis looking at, at benefit by different uh, C-reactor protein levels, they found that almost all the benefit occurred in patients whose C-reactor protein level was greater than 15. 
15. And in fact, much less benefit in patients whose CRP was less than 15. And so uh, many experts and, and a lot of the kind of, you know, people who are kind of experts in the field, some of the talking heads in, in the world of, of critical care medicines have suggested that at least initially, that might be the, the, the thing that helps us make a decision on starting or not starting this intervention is that if you do a baseline CRP in patients who come to the ICU, if it's greater than 15, consider starting uh, higher cortisone, again, at 200 milligrams a day. If it's less than, then perhaps maybe hold off and just see how they do. And so, you know, again, many, many experts that I've read on this have, have suggested that, you know, what the study may show is that steroids are beneficial, but because of this ping-ponging back and forth, there's a subset of, that's only a subset of pneumonia patients that do seem to benefit. And as you might expect, if that is related to CRP, it's the sickest benefits uh, patients seem to benefit. That would also go along with the, with the, the, the hypothesis that only patients in the ICU would benefit because they're super duper sick, right? That, so that, that kind of makes sense. And others have, have, have argued, you know, again, kind of fool me one shame on me, you know, should, should this study have a follow-up um, before it becomes standard, you know, a standardly adapted in, in ICUs across, across the world. Um, I, again, you know, you, you don't want to be the, you know, well, many physicians uh, that I've admired over the years have said, you don't want to be the first person to start a new intervention, but you don't want to be the last either. I would, I would say that, that, you know, overall, my opinion on the study is it does seem to be a very well-run study. You know, there are some kind of interesting blips about the statistics again, and the fact that they had to pretty much stop the study when COVID started, but it didn't seem to hamper things. But again, I very leery of, of an overall adaptation of this study because of the difficulty that we've had with other studies replicating this information. And so again, with, with other interventions. So I've kind of taken and I've kind of, uh, you know, counseled my group here that, you know, this is something to certainly consider. We should, you know, probably wait until hydrocortisone IV is, is, is more readily available. There's no reason why other uh, steroids would not be beneficial, but you know, what's the right dose, et cetera, et cetera, is a little bit up in the air. And so, you know, I think that once intravenous hydrocortisone becomes available, I think for selected patients, and again, it would be patients, in my opinion, who are on uh, Airbo, non-invasive ventilation, or mechanical ventilation, who have a CRP of greater than 15. I think at least at first, that is going to be the, the benefit that the most likely to see a benefit. And I think, you know, what will allow us to, to maybe just take a look at this, dip our toe in the water without having to go full bore and then find out five years later that somebody else tried to replicate the study and again, didn't find a benefit, but maybe in fact found a harm associated with it. So again, trying, trying to be cognizant of the fact that we do want to help patients with severe community acquired pneumonia and we don't want to ignore good data, but I think we also need to be cautious given the long history of supposed miracle cures that never really seem to work out. So, so that's it for this week weeks game changers again thank you for listening uh keep listening we really appreciate all of you who do so we will see you next week but until then remember time flies i don't know where it's going but the most important day is today that's it for this week's episode of game changers ce impact members don't forget to claim your ce for today's episode if you aren't a member join us at ceimpact.com we'll talk to you next week for game changers clinical conversations